Hear now the word of the Lord, Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your your word that is, that is breathed out by you, that you communicate to us and you reveal to us who you are and what you're like. And so as we hear your word from the prophet Micah this morning, would, would you open our, our hearts and minds to, to receive that word, to, to see you in your character and your splendor? Would you give us faith to to believe that you are who you say you are and that you have done what you said you have done and you will do what you say you will do. And God, as our our children go off, would, would you open their hearts and minds to believe the same things about you because you are good and you are kind and you are compassionate. Help us know that this morning as we hear your word proclaimed. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. If you don't know me or I don't know you, uh, my name is Ben. Uh, I am uh, one of the pastors here, uh, and I'm a little less crazy yelly than when I was at sports camp. Uh, it was a blast this week, such a fun time. I love sports camp. Uh, sports are like uh, it, such an enjoyment for me in my life. And so to be able to do camp and teach kids about Jesus and teach them about sports, it's just, it was such a phenomenal time. So glad you're here. If, you're, if you were part of sports camp and you're visiting, really glad you're here. Um, you know, what we did this morning is just really what we do every Sunday. We believe that as we gather together as the church and, and we sing songs together, we pray together, we, we open God's word together, they're, they're, these really simple practices are actually what God uses to change us as people. And we just do that week after week after week. And so there's nothing fancy about what we do, right? This is just what God uses to, to make us more like Jesus every week. Um, this morning we're going to dive into the book of Micah. We're in this Minor Prophet series. We're really, uh, each week, handling an entire book of the Bible, uh, which is rare for us, uh, but it's a fun way to be able to go through a section of Scripture that we often don't, don't touch. And so this morning we're in this book, uh, the book of Micah, and I really I want to start this morning with what is just a massive question for us. Okay, Not a small question at all, and the question is this. What is God like? What is God like? I think that question is is one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves, isn't it? What is God like? And I don't mean that question just, I don't mean to ask it just in a metaphorical sense as if I'm, I'm asking you what to compare God to. Is God like an elephant or is he like a tree or what other image can we picture of God that we can liken him to? That's not what I'm talking about. When I ask what is God like, what I mean is when we think about God, what is fundamental to the character of God? 
What, what's God's nature? What, what matters to God? What's fundamental to who he is? What, what is God like? That's an incredibly important question for us, right? It's a, it's a heavy question. It's a weighty question. And it's a question that, quite honestly, we, most of us uh, don't ask ourselves a whole lot. You know, we live in this era, this moment in history where we tend just not to ask ourselves deep, pressing questions like that. Those questions aren't on our radar. The the questions that press in on us kind of in the day-to-day grind of life, like I think of some of the questions that were pressing in on me this past week. What Netflix series am I going to binge watch on vacation? Maybe what pictures am I going to post onto Instagram this week? Maybe, maybe this past week, right, what am I going to buy on Amazon Prime Day, two days of sale? Like those are the types of questions, however superficial those questions appear when I pose them right side by side with what is God like. Those are the questions that we often ask ourselves on, in our everyday life. We live in this distracted age where for the most part we, we just don't take the time to ask deep, thoughtful questions like this of ourselves. There was a survey recently that found that for more than 80% of people, the first thing that we do when we wake up, like before our feet hit the floor, before we brush our teeth, before we eat breakfast, before we do any of those things, 80% of us, the first thing we do is look at our phone. Not just to turn the alarm off, to check the newest news, Facebook, There's not a lot of margin in these distracted lives that we live to actually ask a question like this. What is God like? But this question is so important. A.W. Tozer, who was an old pastor and theologian uh, that I love and respect, he, he wrote this. He said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The thoughts that enter our mind when we start thinking about God is actually the most important thing about us. Now, for us in America in 2019, that sounds crazy. It's because we, what do we prioritize? We, we don't prioritize discovering about God. We prioritize self-discovery. And the questions that we ask are, what am I like? Who am I and that's the question that dominates our thinking. But what Tozer is saying is that we actually discover ourselves. We discover who we are by discovering who God is. In other words, our answer to this question, what is God like, it actually affects everything about who we are as, as human beings, as people. And so where do we go for answers to this question, what is God like? Well, it's part of the challenge. There was a a Pew Research survey that came out recently that found 90% of Americans believe in some kind of higher power, 90%. And I think if you asked 100% of people, there would be, uh, ask 100 people, there's going to be 100 answers to this question, what is God like? Atheists that don't even believe in God, that say there's no God, would say, well, then you might as well act like God yourself. Agnostics might say, you know, we we can't know what God's like, so it doesn't really matter. Pantheists would say, well, God is everything. Animists would say, well, everything is God. Deists would say God is there, but he doesn't care. Buddhists would say you can become a God. Even people with some type of background in church or in faith would see God in, in multiple different ways. They would, they, they would have bents on the way that they see God. Some might see God as, as either all love and kindness, 
Like sort of this, this white-bearded, uh, grandfatherly-type figure who, who kind of looks down and chuckles at the antics of his children. Right? Some people have that picture of God. And some other people have a picture of God. Uh, the, the image that they have in their mind is of God with a scowl on his face. Right? Lightning bolts sort of at the ready to, to throw at anyone who might oppose him. Or at least anyone who might oppose the person who has that idea of God, right? It's always the other tribe that gets the bolts. So what is God really like with all those options? Well, this book, the the book of Micah that that you opened up as we read uh, this morning, this book that we're studying, it was really written to answer that question. The name Micah itself actually means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? Now, Yahweh was the Hebrew name that God had revealed for himself to his people in the Old Testament. And that's the whole goal of this book of Micah. Micah's goal is to show the beauty and the glory and the uniqueness and the wonder of, of who the God of the Bible is. That's what Micah is writing to get across to us. We're in this series going through the Minor Prophets this summer. If you're visiting, you're actually lucky, right? Being here at this, this time when we're studying the least read book, by least read series of books in the Bible by most Christians. These last 12 books, we're doing nine of them through nine weeks. But if you're not familiar with the way that the Bible is structured, the, these books are really ancient writings. I mean, the book of Micah was written 2,500 years ago. And it was written to the people of Israel as God's word to them at a particular moment in their history. So let me, let me briefly just recap what that moment in the history of Israel looked like. It was a moment when the nation of Israel had actually divided into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, both reigned by separate kings. It was a period when God's people had just sort of walked away from him, when they were in rebellion toward him. They were just kind of doing their own thing. They were falling into idolatry. They were, were worshiping all kinds of other gods. Justice was being neglected. The, the weak and the marginalized on the, on the margins of society were basically being stepped over in the, the pursuit of wealth and success. They were a sexually broken society. They were just a hot mess of issues. And yet, they were also at the same time experiencing all kinds of material prosperity, all kinds of wealth. And so in the midst of that, they were really forgetting who God was. And it's at this moment that Micah, as as the prophet of God, as the one who brings God's word to God's people, it's, it's in this moment that he wants to bring what God has to say to his people in this situation. And and what he wants to remind them of, what he wants to tell them, is what Yahweh, their God, is really like. Now back in Exodus chapter 34, right right near the beginning of your Bibles, God God revealed himself to Moses, right? If, If you're not familiar with that story, think Prince of Egypt, Burning Bush, Ten Commandments, all of this happened in the story of Exodus. And, and it was then that, that God declared his name to Moses, really the essence of who God was and what he's like. We actually read this in our responsive reading this morning. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, God declares his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, God says, this is, this is who I am, right? Listen up, everybody. I'm going to reveal to you the heart of who I am. I'm a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Church, this verse in Exodus 34, 7 is actually the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. Once you see it, it's like a hyperlink just popping off the pages where authors are quoting it, pointing to it, alluding to it. It is the center of how God wants to reveal himself to us. It's, it's the very heart of what God wants us to know about who he is and, and what he's like. And what he wants us to know is that neither is he sort of this, this doting, sleepy-eyed, um, you know, wink at what's going on with the kids, sort of grandfather, nor is, is he this sort of capricious, vengeful, violent deity. He, he's, he's neither of those things. No, God both is perfectly just in his dealing with the sin and brokenness and rebellion of his people and this world and He is chock full. He is overflowing with grace, with love, with mercy, with forgiveness toward humble, repentant, sinful people. And so Micah, basically in his book, he builds out who this God of Exodus 34 is for the people of God, for Israel, and he does it. We don't have time to kind of get into all the nuts and bolts. I'd encourage you in your study guide to check out some of the resources there because Micah is this beautifully poetic book where Micah, through these different prophetic poetic images, three different ones where he pairs God's just judgment right alongside the hope of God's grace and mercy and restoration. That, that pairing happens three times in Micah. It's this beautiful imagery of God's justice and God's mercy played out. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want to just show you how Micah answers this question. What is God like? He, he, he answers it really by telling us just simply these two things about God. They're the two things that God reveals about himself in Exodus 34. Number one, that he is perfectly just. And number two, that he is incredibly In fact, he's unbelievably merciful. He's number one, just. He's number two, merciful. And so, real simple, like if you're a note taker, sometimes we've got like four or five, depending on who's up here, it could be like 10 points, two this morning. What is God like? He's just and he's merciful. I'm not sure what's going on with my mic, but don't be bothered by it. He's just and he's merciful. What is God like? Number one, God is perfectly just. Okay, this is where Micah starts. This is where, if you've got your Bible, uh, I'd love for you to keep it open with you because we're going to read through some of these sections in Micah. So Micah chapter 1 and verse 2. Look at the imagery of God's justice, his judgment that Micah begins with, starting in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, when we get into the prophets, there's all kinds of this poetic imagery happening, right? This is a a poetic picture of what God is doing. Micah is giving us this picture, in essence, of a cosmic courtroom. 
where, where God is, is going to be coming into the courtroom in a moment as a, a witness. It's this, this imagery of a divine trial that all of the earth is actually privy to. All of the earth is in the courtroom. I keep reading here in verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. It's like he's coming out of his chambers. And it will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. This is an intense picture of what's happening. God is showing up from the heavens. And it's like earth is coming undone under his feet. And the question is, why is he coming God's coming to witness, but what's God coming to witness against? Well, the answer comes here in verse 5. Keep keep reading in your Bible with me. He's coming, all of this, Micah says, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So why is God coming down from heaven to earth? Why why are there mountains and valleys splitting open with God's presence? It's because he's, he's coming to judge He's coming to deal with the rebellion of his people. Mike is is painting this picture for us of God coming to judge sin in the world. Now, what sin is he coming to judge? Well, that's actually the exact question that Micah asks right away. If you continue reading in verse 5, he asks, what is the transgression of Jacob? In other words, what is at the heart of Israel's sin that, that merits God coming all the way down from heaven to earth to deal with this sin that's going on? Well, it's, what, it's actually what Micah reveals through the rest of his book and the rest of the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. It's at the very heart of the problem in Israel. This is what was going on in Israel. They, they were worshiping, they were serving, they were, they were giving themselves to all kinds of other gods besides Yahweh. And church, I think this issue of idolatry get, gets at the heart of not only Israel's sin issues, and this gets at the heart of every human's fundamental sin issue. What is sin? What is sin? A word we cast around all the time. What, what fundamentally in biblical terms is sin? At its core, it is idolatry. This is the way the Bible talks about sin so often. Now, in Israel's day, what did idolatry look like? It looked like people literally prostrating themselves, bowing down, making sacrifices to images, statues of wood and stone. Now, in Western culture, we don't experience that a whole lot today, do we? But idolatry still fundamentally exists in every one of our lives. Maybe we don't set up statues and images and prostrate ourselves, but, but we are constantly giving ourselves, giving our loyalty, giving our affections, giving our time, giving our money, giving our commitment, essentially giving our worship to the stuff that God created rather than to the creator himself. And by definition, that is idolatry. And this idolatry, it's not just Israel's issue, it's, it's our issue. We all own it. All of us, every human being has turned our back on our creator, turned our back on God and decided to start serving what? The kingdom of me. 
Right? We've turned our back on God and decided to start serving ourselves, serving us. And Micah is saying that's, that's exactly what this perfectly just God is coming down from heaven to judge. Now, we might not think all of that is that bad. I mean, really, Ben? But can we just give ourselves a moment of honesty? Like, just in this room together, I know we have a hundred of us. Let's be honest with ourselves for a moment because I, I think when we have those moments when we are really, truly honest with ourselves, we will wake up to, we will see how deep the rabbit hole of our own self-obsession goes. I mean, we are on the verge of narcissism constantly as humans. I mean, Facebook depends on this, right? Like Facebook algorithms, the, the mathematics that determine what gets put in your timeline, they run on the fundamental assumption that you will worship yourself, that you will put yourself at the center of life. It's what Google runs its ads on, right? It, what shows up in our web browser is based on this assumption that we as humans are obsessed with self. And these companies are, are actually willing to see what we're often not willing to admit, right? That we're obsessed with self. Now stick with me here because again, you might say, well, Ben, I'm not, I'm not that bad of a person. Like I love my family. I work hard. I, 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 I don't have a criminal record, I'm a pretty decent person. What's the big deal? Why is God judging this kind of idolatry? C.S. Lewis, who was one of the the great Christian thinkers of the 20th century, he wrote a series of novels that you might be familiar with, The Chronicles of Narnia, really fun kids series. And something else that he wrote, he said something really profound. I I was looking for the quote this week and I couldn't find it, so I'm going to paraphrase uh, what he said here. Uh, But it, it was really profound. He said... You know, our fundamental issue as humans isn't just that, that we do what's morally right or what's morally wrong. Our fundamental issue is, is that all of us give God the you-know-what. It's my paraphrase. We shake our fist at God. All of us say to God, I am God, you're not. I will be Lord and master of my life and not you. Now, That can create two different outcomes. Some people will say, you know, God, I am God, not you. And then they'll go out and live just a debauched, blatantly sinful, reckless life because they're saying, hey, I'm my own Lord and master. But there are others who say to God, God, I am God and not you. And then by their own efforts, they try to be as good of people as they possibly can. They live these moral, upright, respectable lives. But at the most basic level, those two outlooks are fundamentally the same. They've said, God, you're off the throne of my life, and I'm putting myself there. They've committed treason against the rightful king over every one of our lives. And that's what's at the heart of Israel's issues here in Micah. And and God, in his perfect justice, isn't just cool with this. He's not this white-bearded grandfather who's just winking, saying, hey, kids will be kids here. He's coming down to, to deal with it. He's actually going to punish these people. 
Look at what he continues to say here. If you've got your Bible open, chapter 1 and verse 6, God begins to talk about what's going to happen. He says, therefore, I will make Samaria. Samaria was the capital, by the way, the northern kingdom of Israel. God says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. In, in other words, he's going to decimate it. It's going to be this, this uninhabitable wasteland. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. I mean, this is strong language. It's actually, it's, it's a euphemism. God's saying he's going to strip Samaria naked. This is, this is severe language that's being used. He's going to destroy this northern kingdom. And God actually did in 722 BC. The Assyrian armies, the armies of the kingdom of Assyria just came and wiped out northern Israel and took them off into exile. But God wasn't done after the northern kingdom. You see, the same idolatry issues that were going on in the north, this, this kingdom of self, this, this displacing God off the throne, those things were going on in the southern kingdom as well. And so here's what God says to them, chapter 2 and verse 3. Flip over to the next page probably in your Bibles for this one. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. For you shall not walk haughtily or, or walk proudly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. Now, probably turn over one more page and I'll show you one more place that, that this, this judgment in the southern kingdom of Judah is being worked out. Chapter 4 and verse 10, God says, God says to Judah the same thing that happened to Israel, a a foreign army marching in and taking you off to captivity. That same punishment is coming for the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And in 586 B.C., Judah fell to the Babylonian armies. They came and wiped out much of Judah and brought the people of Jerusalem to captivity in Babylon, in exile. Now, a couple of thoughts. I, I, I know that when we read a text like Micah, when we come to a book of the Bible like this, th- this is a world, probably several worlds away from Tacoma, Washington, July 21st, 2019, isn't it? And this, this is not just stuff we relate to instantly. And so a couple of thoughts, okay? Just, just stick with me here. Friends, I think one of the lessons that Micah is trying to help us to see is that sin, idolatry, self-worship always separates you from God. It always puts you at odds with him. We, we illustrated that at camp this week just through using two magnets with opposite poles that, that as we turn our back on God, we're fundamentally opposed to him. We become his enemies. And, and, and this is why over and over in the biblical story, the biblical authors use the imagery of exile being sent away from the place where God dwells, being sent away from his presence. This is constantly the image of what sin does in God's people. It puts us at odds with God. It it creates separation between us and him. And so 
Folks, your sin and my sin, like our self-obsession, our our commitment to our will and our way at all costs, our, our refusal to actually be under God's authority, our desire to usurp his throne, our worship of what God created rather than God himself, whether, whether we, we give ourselves to, to serve and sacrifice for wealth or approval or power or sexual fulfillment or security or comfort or physical health or love or significance, whatever it is that God's created rather than the creator himself, the, the, the way that we chase those things as if they are God, not God himself, all of that deserves God's just judgment. His just punishment. Sin violates his justice. It actually must be judged. And and so the human race exists under significant judgment. We all do. This is why John Milton, you you know his title of his book, right? Paradise Lost. It's because we've, we've lost paradise. We've lost this relationship with God because of our sin. Sorry about that. And for all of us, and unless something is done about that, that's the state that we stay in for, for all of eternity. Now, some of you might be sitting here saying, Ben, like this, this sounds a little bit severe. Like when, when, when you hear someone say they're going to go Old Testament on someone, you know, you know maybe what they're talking about, right? That this all sounds a little bit too severe. And if we think that this is severe, it's probably because we don't know a couple things. A, we don't know God's holiness. We don't know who God is, how great he is. And number two, we don't know the depth of our own sin. Think about this with me for a second. Let me give you a bit of a, a picture of this. If, if I were walking down Point Rustin, any of you like Point Rustin? One of my favorite places to go on a day like today. But what I can't stand at Point Rustin are the rented three-wheeled bikes that race around with 12-year-old kids. Uh, it, it destroys my experience of Point Rustin. And so there's moments when going through my mind, I have thought, what would in this moment it look like for me to just bull rush that kid and body check him off of that, that three-wheeled bike? Now, you can imagine if I did that, what would happen? There'd be a scuffle. I'm tall, skinny, but I got a long reach. You know, maybe I might come out on top of that scuffle. There'd probably be some bystanders that come in and, and kind of try and relieve the tension that's going on. But in the end, probably both of us would just walk away, uh, none the worse for wear, right? No, no problems would happen. Now, imagine, kind of funny picture here. Uh, I, I don't know if this is appropriate to even say. Imagine that same scene, except riding that scooter, that three-wheeled bike is not a 12-year-old kid. It's President of the United States, Donald Trump. Now imagine, no matter what you think of Donald Trump, if I did that same thing. Special, you know, all of the protection and bodyguards around him, and I race through and body check Donald Trump off of that three wheeled bike. What would happen then? I'd be serving a very long jail sentence. Why the difference between those two? It's because of the position and the status of the person that's been violated in those two situations. It's not to say that a 12-year-old boy shouldn't get taken care of for getting body checked by a 38-year-old man. However, right, the position and status of the President of the United States means that to violate him is much more severe, and all of us would say much more worthy 
of punishment than to violate a 12-year-old kid. Now, God is much greater than President Donald Trump. Our sin against him is a violation of the creator himself, the creator of all of the cosmos, the most glorious, the most wonderful, the most incredible, the most, the most beautiful person there is. There is no one higher than him, no one more deserving of our worship and our allegiance. And, and not only that, he's done nothing but good to us as the creator. He, he's poured out blessing after blessing on his creation. And yet, what do we do so often? We shake our fist at him. Friends, our sin is terrible when it's against this creator. Micah 6, there's this scene uh, in the, turn there with me, there's this scene, kind of the the divine courtroom of chapter 1 is played over into uh, chapter 6, and God is standing in this courtroom with the people of Israel. He's trying his case against them, and he says to them, chapter 6 and verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And of course, the answer is, God, you haven't. You've done nothing but bless us. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I rescued you and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God's saying, don't you remember all that happened? Don't you remember all the, the good I did to you? All the righteous acts I did? I gave you grace upon grace. I rescued you. I poured out my blessing on you. And yet, you don't give a rip. You give your allegiance away, you rebel, you commit treason against me, and so you are going to experience my perfect justice. And that's what every one of us sitting in this room deserves. Every single one of us. That's perfect justice against our treason. And yet, guess what? When we turn through the pages of Micah, the little preview from from Exodus 34, right? God's just judgment isn't the final word in Micah. And it doesn't have to be the final word in our lives either. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of Exodus 34, the God that Micah is putting on display here in this text, he's not a capricious or vengeful or violent or quick-tempered God. He's a God who is actually bent toward, who's overflowing, who's, who's actually quick-triggered when it comes to mercy, when it comes to grace, it's this God who's just overflowing with massive, lavish, incredible mercy for us. So number two, what is God like? Number one was he is perfectly just. Number two, he, he's in an even more profound way a God of incredible, unbelievable, undeserved mercy. All throughout Micah, there's this picture of the mercy of God put on display through these promises of rescue and restoration. The, Micah is saying that although God's judgment is coming, there, there's this thread through this book, this hope of salvation. L- listen to the language here. If you've got your Bible open, I'm going to flip to a couple spots where we see this. Chapter 2 and verse 12, this, this is immediately after this word of judgment that God's given. He says, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Their, their king passes on before them. And, and who's their king? The Lord is at their head. It's this picture of rescue and renewal and restoration. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 1. 
Micah says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that, listen to this, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This picture of salvation, restoration, rescue. Look down in chapter four to verse six. Starts again, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, the broken, right? And gather those who have been driven away, who are deserving of punishment. And those whom I've afflicted, and the lame will make the remnant, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This picture that Micah is painting here is a picture of rescue redemption, salvation, restoration. This people, right? This people of Israel that deserved judgment, that totally deserved to be wiped out like every one of us. What's happening to them? Instead of being wiped out, they're, they're getting God's incredible mercy toward them. Right? They're, they're being brought back into relationship with God. Now, how did they get there? How did they get moved from this spot of being under God's judgment to to suddenly experiencing and enjoying His mercy and His grace toward them? I mean, we need to know that, right? How how do we get there? Here's what most of us want to do. Here's what most of us naturally, this is our default setting to think this way. How do we get from under His judgment to under His mercy this is true whether you are a Christian already in this room, whether you are interested in the Bible, whether you don't care at all about God. This is true of all of us in some way. What do we do when suddenly we become aware on some level of the sin and brokenness that's going on inside of us? When we, when we are aware what a mess we are, how deep our sin and idolatry goes, what, wow, what is the natural bent that most of us have? We try to earn our way back to God, don't we? And so what do you do? You, you re-up your commitment to come to church more regularly, to read your Bible more, to come to community group, right? You, you commit to do all of these Christian-y things, right? Maybe you say, I'm not going to watch Game of Thrones anymore. I'm going to stop eating ice cream. I don't know what else you do that, that makes you feel somehow like you can move toward God if you do those things. But we, we think, I can just, if I can just get myself back on track with God, things will be good. Look, hear me here. Moving from under God's punishment to under his pleasure isn't something that we can just resolve to do. Israel, in Micah's day, tried to make those kind of resolutions. They, they, they really, Micah asked these questions rhetorically in chapter 6. Turn to chapter 6 and verse 6 with me. With what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? What religious things should I do, right? Will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams being sacrificed, with 10,000 rivers of oil being given to him? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, for my sin, the, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? They're asking God, what religious works should we do to please you? What, what, what would get us into your good books? And here's God's answer. 
God is not interested in your religion or my religion. He's not interested in what religious works we do to try and earn favor with him. What does he say? Verse 8, one of the best known verses in Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That, that walk humbly with your God is the, is the key piece of that, that everything flows from. Micah is saying what it looks like to come from God's punishment into his pleasure is to just simply submit ourselves to God again. I'm really sorry about that. Has anybody been bothered by that? You guys are okay. You're surviving. You're bearing with. God isn't interested in our religious works. It's not interesting what we can bring to him. What he wants is for us to get off the throne, to start humbly submitting to him, walking with him. He wants our trust. He wants to to rescue us. This is the song that was on our slideshow, right? He's our rescuer. That's what Micah is pointing us to over and over again. And rescue, think about rescue by its very nature, the nature of what rescue is. It's something that has to come from outside of ourselves. It's not, it's not something that we can do, that we can do enough to earn. It's something that God does for us. Look with me right at the center of this book because it, it's actually where we get the picture of where this rescue of God comes from. It, it comes in chapter 5 here. This is the hinge that the entire book really turns on. Look at these words here, chapter 5 and verse 2. This is God's promised rescue. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come excuse me, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and, and they shall dwell secure. God's going to, through this person, bring his people back from exile. <clears throat> for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Who's Micah talking about? He's talking about Jesus. This is six or seven hundred years before the New Testament is even written. Matthew in his gospel, right in chapter 2, right at the opening of his gospel, Matthew looks back on these words and, and quotes them in relation to the coming of Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem. Jesus himself, John chapter 10, what does Jesus say about himself in John chapter 10? He says, I am the good shepherd. I'm this shepherd of Micah chapter 5. I think Jesus had this in mind I'm the shepherd of Micah chapter 5 who's going to rescue my people out of being alienated from God, out of punishment, out of being apart from God, and I'm going to bring them back into the fold. I'm going to bring them back into God's family. And Jesus there in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, this is, this is the very heart of what Christians call the gospel. This is the good news that, that though every one of us deserve God's judgment, in, in his unbelievable mercy, God has done something to rescue us. 
And 2,000 years ago, he sent his own son, Jesus, to earth to live 33 years as a human being in every single way except one, that he was sinless. He was the spotless lamb who then went to this device of torture in the Roman Empire, a bloody and brutal cross, and there he was crucified, taking the, 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 the judgment of God against sin for us in our place. And he was laid in a tomb, and three days later he rose again, conquering sin and death and fully bringing those who trust in him into the family of God. That's an insane way to rescue us. It's amazing. But no logical person would just naturally come up with that. I was reading this week in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book, where he, he says that if something makes total sense, it's probably made up. Because things that are real don't always make sense to our logic. A God who, though he should punish us, gives himself in our place to take the punishment that we deserve and to satisfy justice. There's no logic to this. And yet it just comes out of the sheer mercy and grace and kindness and steadfast love of our Lord. It's this mercy that makes Micah write these words that we read right at the beginning in chapter 7. You can turn back there. Who is God like you? This is chapter 7 and verse 18. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like him? Who's a God like him? A God of perfect justice and incredible mercy. Look, where else are you going to go for something like this? I mean, there is no spouse, there is no child, there is no best friend, there is no boss, there, there is no one who will be as blatantly honest with you about what a mess you are, about how self-obsessed you are, who will see to your worst moments, the very worst of who you are, know every part of you, and yet love you so lavishly, so incredibly at that very spot. No one. Who is God like him? Who is God like him? There's only this God. There's no one else who in mercy and love offers himself as the satisfaction for his justice. And when we look at that cross, that this place where his justice and his mercy collide together, when we look at that place, we suddenly see, man, our sin is way worse than we ever thought. And we're loved way beyond what we could ever imagine. There's a, a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If any of you have read that book, there's a scene uh, that I think expresses so much of the uniqueness of this God that Micah is talking about. There's a scene where the Pevensey's children, the four of them, have just gone into this 
mystery, uh, what do you call it, uh, mythical kingdom of Narnia, and it's winter there. The, the king Aslan, this lion, has, has gone away, and it's winter in this place. And the Pevensey's children find themselves in this beaver dam talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're secretly, because he's the distant king, they're secretly talking about Aslan, what he's like when he's coming back. And Mr. Beaver is talking about him, and, and Susan, one of the Pevensey's children, says to Mr. Beaver, she's a little bit afraid of what Aslan is like, and she says, says to Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? And Beaver says to her, well, no, of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is good. This picture that Micah is giving is not of a safe God for us. For those who are prideful and rebellious, who exist in self-worship, who don't want anything to do with God, God is not safe whatsoever. But for those who humble themselves, who walk humbly with their God, who come knowing that they are broken and in need of rescue and can't do anything for themselves, to those people, he is utterly, incredibly, amazingly good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We got to be honest what a mess we are. And yet in your mercy and your grace, you have promised a way to rescue us from the depth of our sin and idolatry. God, help our eyes even this morning as we continue to worship to, to just turn and see Jesus. To see this place where justice is satisfied and mercy poured out. And Lord, we, we want to with all our hearts run there. We want to run there and behold, 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 and be changed. Do that work in us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.